Jesus. The Son of God and Son of Man made a covenant with us? Question mark, exclamation point. As you read that, that's how you ought to think. Un incredible, unbelievable. Why are we starting to celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday in our morning worship? We're answering that question by taking a more detailed look at the Lord's Supper in Scripture. We're looking at the, we're looking at the Lord's Supper, started last Sunday, looking through the eyes and mind of Jesus. I have chosen not to quote from theological statements found in the Westminster Confession or our catechisms or in from Burkhoff's theology. I want us, all of us, to look at the Lord's Supper and understand it in our own words. The Westminster Confession is wonderful. But very often we open it and say, here's what the Lord's Supper is. We read it. Maybe we memorize it, but we really don't understand what it's saying. So when I say, but when I say, look at the Lord's Supper and understand it in our own words, we're not redefining the table. We're not dumbing it down. We're trying, striving to agree with Scripture in every way. Last week, we looked at the Lord's Supper through the eyes and mind of Jesus. We watched and listened in that upper room, as he instituted the Lord's Supper as a holy, sacred event. Sacred. It's, that, that word holy means to set apart. Sacred means set apart. It was set apart not by the disciples. It was set apart by Christ. It was set apart by God himself. We call it a Sacrament. It comes from the same word as sacred, as holy, a sacrament. The Passover, we learned last week in the Old Testament, was a sacrament for Israel. God put it on their calendar. He commanded it into their calendar that it be kept every year. It gave specific instructions about how it was to be kept. He was setting that apart. Thus, it was a sacrament. It was sacred. It was holy. God had passed through Egypt. The final plague in his war, in his judgment of Pharaoh in Egypt. And the firstborn, he would pass through the land and he would take the life of the firstborn of every home. Israel, you're to put the blood on the door or your firstborn will die. It was named the Passover because God passed over the houses, the families of Israel when he saw the blood on the door. And they were to remember that every year. 
A hundred years later, they were celebrating it the same way. 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. They were still speaking of that awful night of judgment and how God saved them and he brought them out of Egypt. It was a sacrament. We saw that it was looking forward to another Passover. It was looking forward to another Passover lamb, a greater Passover lamb. The Passover lamb in the New Testament was a greater lamb, Jesus himself. And he was saving his people from a greater judgment. Now that's a summary of of last week. So what is the Lord's Supper? It's a sacrament. It's not hard to understand, is it? Just an event set aside and holy, sacred to God, sacred to us. Christ was actually called our Passover lamb. So for an understand the Lord's Supper, we just say it's a sacrament. Teach your children that. That's what we're doing. It's in a holy event set apart. We come to another word this morning that is essential to understanding the Lord's Supper. And that word is covenant. We will hear ministers say, for me say, this is a covenant table. This is a covenant supper. You know, all of us as ministers, when we say that, we need to ask ourselves, how many people in the congregation know what a covenant? Know what you mean when you say a covenant table? We would find out as ministers, if we ask that honestly, that not many people do understand it. We saw last week that we have sacraments with a small s all through our families, all through our cultures. We talked about birthdays. Birthdays are sacred days in the, inside of a family, sacred to the small s. We're not talking about God now. July the 4th is, is, is uh, everyone knows that. In the, if you're a citizen of the United States, you know July the 4th. That's, that's when we celebrate our independence. Year after year, decade after decade, century after century, that's what we've done. It's, it is... So, so we have sacred events all through our daily lives, all through our everyday lives. This is set apart, not by a sacrament is, is set apart and made holy, not because we've made it holy, not because we've named it, not because a great battle has taken place for our country. That's not it. God named this. Why are we doing this, John? God said to Well, it's the same way with the word covenant. We say vows and make vows throughout our lives. We make covenants throughout our lives. Last night I officiated at the wedding of a young lady that I have known since infancy, since her infancy. Her name is Anne. She made a vow, stood before God, and made a vow 
to a young man named Hunter. He made a vow to her. They made a covenant. And in this culture, I'm sure that Ann and Hunter know people and had friends that have just skipped the covenant part. They just said, hey, let's live together. They didn't get married. Didn't make any vows. Didn't make any covenant. We love each other. They didn't stand before, these people didn't stand before their families and friends making a solemn oath. They did not sign official government documents verifying their vows. But it was different for Anne and Hunter. They regarded marriage more seriously. They're saying, we're not just saying we love each other. We're sealing our love. We're vowing to love each other through sickness and health, poverty and prosperity, no matter what comes. I'm going to love her. She says, I'm going to love him. And they seal their vows. They made a covenant in the name of Jesus before God. That's what's happening in Genesis 15. A covenant is being made. Let's talk about it very quickly. First, you see that this is a dramatized covenant. Look at verse 9. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the sun, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. You see that? How do, how do we enter into a covenant? We live in a written culture. A document is drawn up. Commitments are made. Consequences for keeping or not keeping those commitments are written down. And the document is signed and then it's sealed with an official seal. Well, Abraham or Abram, lived in an oral culture. A man's word had to count if he were to be believed. His word meant something. However, when the commitments had huge implications for their culture, had huge implications for their lives, their culture had a way of adding something to an individual's word. A covenant would be made, not a written document. The covenant was made by graphic drama. What did God tell Abram to do? Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. 
You didn't need to tell Abram anything else. He knew exactly what was taking place. He had seen this done. Maybe he had done it himself. He gathered those animals. Abram set up the props. The animals were torn asunder. They were torn in two parts. And an aisle was made between those pieces. Abram fell, we read, into a sleep induced by the supernatural. This same terminology was used when God put Adam to sleep, when he took a rib from his body. There's a difference between falling asleep in your bed in the sleep that you have when the doctor suddenly, you, it's a sudden, you know, you're on the, sur- you're having surgery and you're awake one minute, zoom. You know, Terry, when we get up in the morning, I'll ask Terry, did you sleep? And she might say, hey, it was really wonderful. I had a good night's rest. She might say, fitfully, I woke up three times. Well, I love going to surgery for one reason. I'm going to sleep. You know, you never, you know, you never, no one ever asks you, you know, well, how did you sleep during the surgery? You never say, fitfully. You know, this was a deep supernatural sleep. And then what happened? I'm I'm taking the time with this because people skip over verse 12. And a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Whoa. This is the holy dread, which is the weight of God's glory. The weight of God's holiness. This God who made the universe that's beyond his omnipotence. He is omniscient. He's beyond imagination. He is holy. He's not a God with whom you trifle. Abraham did not feel like dancing. He did not feel giddy. God had approached. This brought the gravitas to the moment, to the place. In this passage, this is the holy, omniscient, omnipotent glory before whom the angels fall. Imagine how the sinner responds to such holiness, to such purity. It was the same presence that Isaiah knew there in Isaiah 6 in the temple when God gave him a vision of his glory. And what did Isaiah, did Isaiah dance for joy? Was he giddy? He fell on his face and said, I'm undone. 
I've had it. Surely I'm going to die. It was the same presence that brought the weighty darkness to Calvary. When Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the earth shook. This was the Son of God, the Creator, on the cross, dying. The earth shook. And the darkness came. And even a pagan centurion said, certainly he's deity. Sometimes I, I want to leave this place. Sometimes I want to leave the sanctuary in the middle of the worship. Sometimes in any sanctuary I'm sitting. Sometimes I want to get up and leave because I know God's present. God's presence. This same God, he's present in this room right now. That's, what we, that's how we begin our worship. Why begin it like we do? He's not a God with whom we should trifle. And so I'm sitting there. And I don't feel the weight of His holiness. I don't feel the weight of His glory. And I know He's there. Oh, people. The church needs to hear this. We need to come back to this. We talk about the sovereignty of God. The rule of God. We need to talk about the glory of God, the gravitas of God, the greatness of God. We live in a culture where even the evangelical church is trying to accommodate the culture inside the churches and say, this is what the world's doing. We've got to somehow do this inside the church and the world will feel comfortable. We've got to change our worship that will accommodate the world will go to Genesis 15 and try to accommodate that God. You can't change who God is. You can't take away his glory. You can't take away his holiness. So then what happened in this drama? A fire appeared. And this is drama, people. A fire appeared. It wasn't a little match. A fire. And this blazing fire, this was the fire that when God was present in the burning bush, this was the pillar of fire that it, it just wasn't fire by itself. This was representing God. God was present in this. He led. Was, you know, when that pillar of fire was leading Israel through the wilderness, was it just an impersonal fire that was there? No, it was God himself. A pillar of fire. Abram saw it. And that pillar of fire passed down the aisle between the pieces of the animals. And look at verse 18. And on that day, the Lord, not Abram made a covenant, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. This omniscient, omnipotent God, holy, made a covenant with a mere man? A sinful man at that?
The gravitas was there, not because of the greatness of Abram. This was God himself swearing an oath. I love the scene in Luke when Gabriel, the archangel, appears to Zechariah there as he's by the altar of incense. An angel tells him his wife is going to have a baby. His wife is retirement age. And Zechariah said, that can't happen. She's old. I'm old. We can't make children. What did Gabriel say? Zechariah, do you know who you're talking to? I'm Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And because of your silly words, you won't speak again until that child is born. That's what's happening here. It's all God. Look at Jeremiah 34, 18. It's on your scripture sheet. This is about the covenant. The men who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and then walk between the pieces. They walked between the pieces and they made a vow. These men did. And they didn't keep the vow. God says, see, when you pass through those pieces, you were saying, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word. May this calf happen to me if I don't keep this covenant. May this happen to me if I don't keep my vow. You know, maybe this would, Bill, maybe this would be a more effective way to making a covenant today than going and sitting in your office. You might think about this and having a document made up. Just kill a few animals. You know, that, that painter or that workman that's supposed to have come to your house four different times and hadn't showed up one time. And you've been trying to get the work done. And you've already paid him half, but he does, he's not showing up. It might be effective to call him up tomorrow morning. More effective to call him and says, drop by the house and have some animals' bodies laid out there that you've slaughtered. And say, now you walk between those pieces and you tell me, may I be like these animals that have been slain, that have been torn apart. May I be like them if I'm not here Tuesday morning to fix this. Be more effective, I think. This was a dramatized covenant. We must move very quickly. It's a strange and gracious covenant. It's a strange covenant. Why is it strange? Because God, the flame, walked down the aisle, walked through the pieces. Only God. Abram didn't. Abram did not. The covenant was unilateral. God set the terms of the covenant. God made the promises. God made the commitment. Usually when covenants were cut between nations, the greater nations, say you were the ruler of Babylon and you had conquered some little province out here, you would have that king or that governor of that province come to you and you would lay out the pieces and you would make him walk through it. I promise you the king of Babylon wouldn't walk through it. No. It was the the vassal that would walk through it, the vassal king, the governor would walk through it. And if I don't keep my oath to you, king of Babylon, if I don't serve you and keep my allegiance, may this be done to me. That's how it was usually done. But this one, the vassal didn't walk through. Abraham, the vassal, just watched as God walked through. 
Every other religion is just the opposite. Man is the one who must walk through the pieces. He's saved by his efforts. He's saved by his works. He's saved by his goodness. He's saved by his allegiance. That didn't happen here. It was God. Our God is all his grace and his grace alone. It's also not just a strange covenant. It's a gracious covenant. God was taking Abraham's failure for granted. He knew Abraham could not, Abram could not keep the covenant. He was saying, Abram, I will be torn apart if I break this covenant. And I will be torn apart if you break the covenant. You don't see covenants like this. The most powerful walk through, not the vassal, not the least. And he swore he would take the curse for failure for either party. It's exactly what happened. We see a dramatized covenant, a strange and gracious covenant, all of grace. But it's a prophetic covenant. It points to a greater covenant, just as the Passover pointed to a greater Passover. This covenant pointed toward a greater covenant. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, and he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, "This is my body." which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Look at the picture of Jesus at the table. Go back to that table now. This bread is my body. Eat of it. This wine is my blood poured out for you. And if you're attentive, if you're Blake sitting back there, or Tyler, they say, hey, John, you missed it. There's another word in there. He didn't say, this wine is my blood. He said, this cup, this wine poured out for you is a new, new, what? Covenant in my blood. Look at the picture of Jesus on the cross. It was not the nails that pierced and crushed him that day. They did little damage. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being torn asunder as the covenant breaker under the judgment of God. A judgment reserved for us. Covenant breakers was spent on him. He did not do this for our benefit, he did it in our place. It should have been us. This is the body and blood of Jesus Christ torn apart.
Jesus was looking back to Genesis 15. Just like the Passover and the Exodus. Jesus was looking back at that. That night when he said, this is my blood of the covenant. He was there. When God walked through the fire and said, Abraham, Abram, 